The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last number of weeks... I've been exploring the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path at this time. And um, my last time here, I began the exploration of right intention, which seems like an appropriate topic for today. Uh, And unfortunately, last time, I didn't push the correct button on the recorder, so it didn't get recorded. So I thought I would kind of review a wise intention again, but from the perspective that may be, may be a little more relevant um, uh, for the day, you know, on New Year's Day, it being New Year's Day, the, um, you know, we, we often think about this at this time of year, we often explore or reflect on what our um, intentions are for the year, what our purposes, what we might want to uh, gather and collect our, um, uh, collect our um, intention towards. New Year's resolution seems to be a, a very common uh, thing to do at this time of year, but we often think about a New Year's resolution from the perspective of, you know, so what specific thing do I want to do or, or not do? And um, I'd like to reflect on this more from the, from the direction not of a specific experience or specific event or specific action, but more from what are our aims, our purposes, our, our direction. What is, what is our kind of aspiration? Our intentions, I think, relate to our aspirations and um, they both are connected with what our views and beliefs are. And this is, um, I think, spoken to by the way the Eightfold Path is structured. The very first part of the Eightfold Path, wise view, kind of sets our direction, sets our, um, sets our, uh, the way that we want to orient and the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise intention, is exploring the ways in which that view can support the intentions that we want to take. And so it is, it is a, a kind of very natural thing that um, our views inform our intentions. What our, our views are typically sets our you know what we believe, what we think is going to make us happy, what we uh, what we aim towards. You know, so our views and our beliefs will shape our choices. And this is the the connection I think between views and intentions, and the connection between wise view of the Eightfold Path and wise intention. And so we, um, in in exploring or reflecting on what our um, our views are you know what what is what is our what are our basic perspectives on what brings happiness you know this is this kind of reflection um, is one that the Buddha 
explored when he uh, left his, started, started his journey. What is, what is, is happiness possible? Is a deep kind of happiness possible? Because he looked around and saw that the way we typically engage to find happiness the ways that we tend to kind of go immediately for pleasure, the ways that we um, grasp after pleasant and push away unpleasant. He saw that what we tend to grasp after and push away, these things are not very reliable places for happiness. That we tend to go for the quick hit of happiness in getting something pleasant. But whatever we get that's pleasant, that itself is a very impermanent, unreliable thing. And so it's, it's going to be uh, ending. It's going to be disappearing at some point. And so the, the typical way that we engage, he found, he discovered, as being a not a very... That it does create happiness. He, he acknowledged that, that the kind of... Um, typical way that we engage does lead to a kind of happiness, but that that is not a very reliable kind of happiness. And so he began to explore, is there a more reliable kind of happiness? And, and began to um, look at what it is that might lead to a deeper kind of happiness. And so in that, he began to explore, and this, this I think is really the kind of a, a corner piece of his, of his um, teaching, is what is it that leads us to affliction? Because affliction, maybe we can think of as being the opposite of happiness. And not only what leads to affliction of ourselves, but, but of others, of both. So that we look at what views and what intentions might support leading us away from affliction leading us towards a deeper kind of happiness. But, his, but his, his, his exploration was around what is it that leads to affliction? What leads to struggle? What leads to distress? And so in that, he began to understand that um, um, actions taken out of greed, out of aversion, out of delusion they tend to keep us hooked to affliction. And I'll get into that a little bit more, possibly later. But I want to come back now to, to aspiration and you know, this kind of broad picture of what is it that we want? How do we want to aim our lives? And I think this, for most of us, the question of what leads to a deep kind of happiness? What leads to, and, and often at this time of year, we do reflect on deeper themes of peace, of harmony, of, of kindness, of compassion, of generosity as being a kind of um, way forward for our personal lives as well as for our, our society and our cultures and our world. And so what, what are our aspirations? And how do we want to live our lives? This is a question that I think is really worth reflecting on, especially at this time of year. You know, this is the, the time of year when 
I was just reflecting a little earlier on the, the kind of the symbolism of this time of year. The solstice happened a few weeks ago and that's the time when the sun begins to return. The days begin to lengthen. The sun maybe symbolizes growth and nourishment um, and the, 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 there's this kind of interesting interplay between um, um, kind of the, the nourishment of the sun and the nourishment of the stillness and the, 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 the being underground. And so there's this interesting interplay between dark and light here. That, the, um, that there's a, a nourishment not only of the sun returning, but also of the time, this, this kind of fallow time of the next few months, where seeds remain under, under the ground. Seeds remain deeper in the soil. And so there's this time for us to uh, explore the, the fallowness. The, and in that, there's a resting. In the, in the seeds being under the earth, in the, in the darkness, there's the, the resting that can happen there. And the, the, this is a time for reflection of what do we want to nourish? What seeds do we want to nourish? And so this, uh, this time of year is really a time to, uh, to symbolically, in a way, we can bring that into what do we want to nourish in our lives? What are the aspirations and intentions that we really want to cultivate? And so what are your deepest aspirations? So to come at this reflection about, you know, maybe what, how do I want to engage in the world, not from specific actions, but from the, the big picture. How do I want to be? Does the, do these, do the, does, does how I want to be align with non-affliction? This, this kind of foundational teaching that the Buddha offered of, you know, just very simply, so many ways I've been appreciating the simplicity of what the Buddha taught. You know, he taught a teaching to his son when he was seven years old. A simple teaching that a seven-year-old can understand about affliction and about intention. He said to his son, before you act, reflect Will this action cause affliction, create harm for yourself or for another or for both? And if that's going to be the case, don't do that action. And so again, you know, kind of really keeping it simple. And, and he, went, he went further than just before you act. He, he, he encouraged his son not only before he acted, but while he was acting to reflect on this same thing. Is this causing harm? Is this causing affliction for self or other or both? And if so, to stop. And then also to reflect afterwards. So I think this, this teaching encourages us to, to kind of really look at our actions, our intentions from this perspective of not harming, non-affliction, kindness and compassion being very foundational aspirations for us. 
And so maybe you're reflecting on that. What are you most inspired by? And as you reflect on that, maybe just take some time right now to reflect on that. Just what are you most inspired by? And in that, what might be an aspiration that's connected to that, in, that inspiration? It can be really simple to be kind, to be generous, just a simple friendliness, care, concern. Again, this to me is really the, sim- the simplicity of what the Buddha was speaking to, to his son. Be kind. Reflect on your actions and orient them, align them with kindness. And so whatever inspires you, whatever motivates you at this deeper level, remember that. And then, you know, don't set it on a shelf somewhere. This is, I think, one of the biggest things that happens with these kind of reflections during the new year. We make and we connect to an aspiration or intention and then it's like, oh yeah, and then we forget. But this, at connecting at this deeper level, connecting at an aspiration or an intention at a deeper level like this, you know, hopefully you may have come or touched into something that's a, a quality of heart. And I think in connection with um, relationship, Many of those qualities are expressed by the Brahma Viharas, the qualities of Brahma Vihara means divine abode, and these qualities are qualities of relationship, of love, of compassion, of joy, and of equanimity. And these I, I think of as these kind of as the emotions that are related to a heart that is not constricted, a heart that's not contracted, that's not fearful and tied up in knots, that the the heart that is not bound up with greed, aversion, and delusion will naturally respond to the world with these qualities. And so perhaps your you know, what motivates you or what inspires you has a flavor of one of these qualities of joy, of kindness, of compassion. Or maybe, maybe simply balance of just having some balance in our lives. And if you can connect to a quality like that as a, as a deeper aspiration then it can be useful to, in not setting it on the shelf, connect it to our everyday activities. We often think of aspirations as being something big, as being something like major or, you know, 
oh, I'm supposed to do some huge thing. But these qualities are relevant in every moment of our lives. And so in the simple ways that we go through our lives, driving on the freeway, going to the grocery store, talking to a family member on the phone, can we remember this aspiration and see if our actions might be in some way connected to that aspiration? And so this, this is a way to keep these alive. And it's a, it's a way to cultivate and nourish in this fallow time, to nourish those intentions, to nourish those aspirations. And so, you know, just an example, a simple example of um, driving on the freeway. Maybe we connected with an aspiration of, of kindness and generosity, something like that. And, and maybe we can frame our time driving on the freeway through those intentions. Letting somebody have an easy merge on the freeway could be looked at as an act of generosity and of kindness. So, you know, just simple ways in which we can remember these aspirations. Maybe waking up in the morning. May, this may be something you could explore. Um, maybe once a week if, you know, trying to do this on a work day or something is, is challenging. But, um, you know, just remember, connect with, what's my deepest aspiration? And what am I doing today? Okay, I'm going to be out in the yard. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, going to the grocery store. I'm going to be making dinner for my family. You know, these, these simple activities, which have a kind of, um, you know, basic motivation of taking care of our, of our families and, you know, buying food and that kind of thing. But, but they also are connected at a deeper level to care and concern for ourselves and others. And so can we remember that? Simply remembering that connection of the care and concern that's infusing those actions has a power to it. We often engage in these actions. Sometimes we engage in these actions like driving on the freeway with the intention to get somewhere, (laughs) with the kind of a rushing quality, and it's actually obscuring that motivation, that connection to that deeper aspiration. So maybe we can remember, and that might help us to let go of that more um, unhelpful motivation to be in a hurry, to be in a rush, to get somewhere. We can be, we can be moving quickly and yet still connect to our intentions, our deeper aspirations. And so, you know, to, to, to see, can these, can we remember our deeper, our deeper intentions, our deeper aspirations as we go through our day? Gil told me at one point he had this practice of looking at his calendar each day. It's like, okay, what's on my calendar today? But to reflect on it, so he made this an actual practice 
to reflect on it, not in terms of what I need to get done, but how I want to be as I do those things. So, you know, having, having a conversation with somebody, how do I want to be? I want to be kind and truthful. Can I remember that? So if we are kind of going through our lives without this remembering, and I mentioned in the guided meditation the simplicity of just remembering our breath, remembering that we are here, remembering our intention, our our deeper wishes, our deeper aspirations, can have a power to help shape how we are, to help us make our choices in a wise way. And so even going to the grocery store, you know, remembering that kindness and generosity and care that might be motivating you. At one point, I used going into the particular Safeway that I went into so often, I I worked very near a Safeway, and so I went in there very frequently for lunch. You know, I'd go to the store and get my sandwich there, and and I'd go through the store, and I I began using it as a time to cultivate love of kindness. And I looked around, and I thought, wow, this place does need some kindness, because there's a lot of suffering that happens in a Safeway. (laughs) You know, people are frustrated with their kids, and you know, struggling to get through the get through the lines and waiting and impatient and and so I began, you know, just offering in my mind, just offering kindness to everyone that that uh, I came across. You know, may you be happy, may you be healthy. And the the the, the person who was the one who often made my sandwiches, he was a little slower than. I think he was new. He was a little slower. But I was watching him. I saw that some of the people were impatient with his uh, actions. And, and, but I, I, over time, as I was doing this practice of offering kindness to everyone, I began to see how much care he was taking with everyone's sandwich. You know, he was making those sandwiches with love. I really felt that. He was so engaged with his how he spread things on the, on the, on the bread. And, and I just had such a fond feeling for him. And one day somebody was standing next to me and, and she was impatient and she said something about, it was, you know, her, she was waiting for, for this uh, person to make her sandwich. And she said, oh, he's so slow. And I said, yes, but he makes them with love. <laughs> I don't know what happened in her mind, but it, <laughs> it helped me to, to say that at least. To, uh, you know, to, to just connect with this, to connect with this intention. And so we can remember these intentions and in integrate this into whatever we're doing. And so this is my, my hope for you for this New Year's Day, that you remember these aspirations and connect to this in your everyday activities. Preparing a meal while you're chopping the vegetables. It's like, this is to feed and nourish my family. This is about love and kindness and care. 
if we don't remember that, you know, it's not that those, that those intentions aren't there, but the recognition of them, the remembering of them, adds some nourishment. It's, it supports and encourages their cultivation. This is one of the great things about mindfulness. You know, mindfulness, we often think about mindfulness in terms of looking at what's happening in our moment-to-moment experience. And, you know, often in, in our um, exploration, we do run into difficulty. You know, we run into a struggle and aversion and greed. We run into um, uh, constriction. And the mindfulness helps us to hold that with some balance, you know, mindfulness itself, I think of as a, it's, it's an equanimity practice in a way. And in that practice of bringing mindful attention to our challenges and our struggles, we've, I think we've, we've most of us seen that doing that allows some kind of space around that struggle and, and can sometimes even allow it to shift and change and and maybe to release. You know, that this, the, the power of mindfulness, when we're not fighting and trying to push away, so we're bringing mindful, we're bringing into mindfulness these qualities of kindness and compassion. So kind attention, compassionate attention, loving awareness allows us to hold whatever's happening in a bigger container that can create a different unfolding, can create something different happening. And so as we bring this kind of mindfulness to something challenging, it creates the conditions for those kind of qualities of mind, of constriction, of confusion, of pain, of of, of, uh, aversion, of holding tightly, it creates the conditions for those to release over time. And yet on the other side too, as we become aware of the more beautiful side of our aspiration and our intention, as we become aware of the wholesomeness that's in there, the kindness that's connected with our actions, the concern and care and generosity that is present, as we become aware of that, mindfulness creates the conditions for that to increase. It's, it's as if our, um, in these qualities of mind, if we, if we think about these, um, these qualities as the seeds that are growing, Mindfulness creates the conditions for certain of those qualities to kind of, it's kind of like the, the way that light will um, um, prevent certain kinds of molds from growing. You know, so it's that light will that that the mindfulness will um, will allow uh, certain things to grow and other things to not grow. 
the very same quality of mind, this compassionate mindfulness, this kind attention, creates the conditions for the denourishment of greed, aversion, and delusion, and for the nourishment of love, of generosity, of kindness, of wisdom, of care, of joy. So the, the, the unwholesome qualities reduce and the wholesome qualities increase. And so the very remembering of these wholesome qualities helps to nourish them, helps them to grow. And so this kind of reflection is not small. It's a powerful tool to help us orient our mind in the direction of wise intention, of wholesome intention. And so this wa- the wise intention that the Buddha talked about you know, the, in, this eight, in the Eightfold Path, wise intention of um, what is aligned with the Dharma, and what, what is connected with the movement towards a deeper kind of happiness and away from affliction. In a very in a very simple way, he 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 had a one experience he described in a teaching where he reflected on this aspect of affliction in relationship to his thoughts. And he said, "When I noticed when certain kinds of thoughts would arise, they were connected with certain kinds of motivations, certain kind of of intentions were connected with them, and those led me towards led towards affliction." They led towards affliction of myself, of others, of both. And these were intentions of ill will, of cruelty, and of craving, basically. Of desire, of sense desire. And when he noticed that his thoughts were not connected with with those, they were connected essentially with the absence of those, with non-ill will, with non-cruelty, and with a letting go of that kind of craving, a letting go of that sense-desire, a relinquishment, a, a renunciation, he called it. When his thoughts were connected with those, he said they, they did not lead to affliction. It didn't lead to suffering for himself or others or both. And so again, this is pointing to how our views, how our, our views connect with our um, intentions and how those intentions will then motivate action. And this place of intention is a powerful place because when we, we can see, perhaps we can see an intention come up that is not so helpful. And this is another place where mindfulness is powerful because we can begin to see our intentions happening before we act. We can, we can see, you know, what is motivating this? We can, we can recognize, oh, this, as the Buddha did, oh, this thought, this is connected with ill will. And in the seeing of that, 
as he pointed out to his son, if we can see that a particular action or a particular intention is connected to something that's going to lead to affliction, we can choose otherwise. And so the, the, the intention is kind of a tipping point for us. That our views will shape our intentions and we can, we can see those intentions. And if we can recognize certain intentions as being leading towards suffering, leading towards struggle, maybe a connection with our deeper aspiration can help to lead us in another direction, can help us to choose differently, maybe simply to refrain from a certain action. You know, how many times have we spoken out of frustration or anger and instantly regretted it, instantly realized the suffering that was resulting from that. If we can see, and we can't always, we cannot always remember this before we speak or act. And yet sometimes we can. Sometimes we can remember, right, that what I'm about to say, that's motivated out of frustration and anger. Maybe I should not say that. Maybe I should just be silent right now. If we can remember that, then that actually begins to connect us with this, the, the, the intention towards non-affliction, the intention towards non-ill will, the intention towards non cruelty. And those times, as the Buddha pointed out, you know, to his son, you know, reflect before, during, after. In this case, you know, this example of saying something and immediately realizing, oops, you know, in that moment, the Buddha encouraged us to to reflect, did this create harm or suffering? And if so, you know, there's several things to do there. First, to undertake, he's, uh, the, the, the state, the, the, what he told his son is like, undertake restraint in the future. You know, to try to remember not to do that again. And, you know, make amends. So, something I like to say is like, get really good at cleaning up the mess. You know, that's, that's a part of our practice. Get good at acknowledging, yeah, that wasn't helpful. I'm sorry that created harm. You know, we have this um, quality in our hearts that is connected to the uh, what we could call maybe a kind of a an ethical. It's like, I would maybe we can call it an ethical compass, kind of letting us know when we have done something that wasn't helpful. So when we've done something that creates harm, often it hurts. We feel it. We feel that pain. And sometimes we want to deny that, push that away, or uh, somehow, um, you know, make the other person responsible, or 
say, oh, they deserved that anyway, or I didn't really say anything wrong, or something. We'll, we'll try to justify it somehow. Because it's hard to feel that quality. It's hard to feel that, that pain of having done something that made somebody hurt. And yet, the Buddha points to this aspect, this, this kind of a quality. Um, we could call it conscience, our conscience gets tickled when we do something that somebody that hurts somebody else. And it's a not a pleasant feeling. You know, oftentimes we think of wholesome qualities as being pleasant, and many of them are. But here's a wholesome quality that feels unpleasant. It's designed to help us recognize ah, that hurt. To me, this is a kind of very natural side effect. I don't know if it's a side effect. It's part of our empathetic nature. That when we see somebody suffering, we feel it. When we realize that we have done something that created harm, we feel it. The Buddha called this quality, the, the Pali is hiri, H-I-R-I. And I like the translation of conscience. But it, it has a quality that feels remarkably similar. I, I, I had an exploration around this at one point. Um, when I did something, I did it a little quickly. I wasn't intending to cause harm. But I was a little bit, there's some delusion in there. You know, I, did, I took an action kind of quickly without thinking it through fully. And um, the amount of suffering that resulted from that action was, it was tremendous. It was as if, I mean, the, 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 the image that, that came to me is that I was standing in a pool of gasoline and I dropped a match. You know, there was a huge explosion, almost, you know, within, within hours of what I did. There was this huge explosion that had ramifications that rippled out to so many people. It was so painful. And the, the feeling inside, you know, there's, it's so, it, it, was, it was so close to shame and guilt. You know, and there were times that that feeling would tip into that, the feeling of guilt, the feeling of self-recrimination. I did this, I was so stupid. And, and, and yet very quickly the mind could see, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know I was standing in a pool of gasoline. And yet I did drop the match. I did something a little quickly. And so the, you know, the reflection for me over the next several months, because this was, you know, a, a process that unfolded over quite some time. <laughs> the explosion happened in hours, but the, the unfolding was over several months. And so, you know, the, the, um, the reflection I made was to look at this quality of, you know, the, the heart that hurt, having done something that created so much suffering, and to begin to understand and distinguish it from that feeling of self-recrimination. They're so close. It's like this hair's breadth difference between them. It's so easy 
when we recognize, oh, I've done something that created harm. It's so easy to slip into that self-recrimination out of habit. And yet when I began to really notice it and feel into that quality, it's like, oh, this is the quality that helps me, that helps me acknowledge that I did something that was unskillful, helps me to speak and make amends, and helps me to navigate things more carefully in the future. And so this quality of hearing is, is it's, it's, it's when we get, you know, so this is what I mean by getting good at cleaning up the mess, is recognizing this quality of, of hearing, this quality of conscience, and not fleeing from it, not wanting to push it down, but also not piling it on ourselves, saying, I'm so bad, I'm so stupid. It's, it's this, this really fine line that we walk here. And sometimes I would just say to myself, it's like this, to have done something that created harm. And there wasn't the intention to do that. How can I move forward? How can I, how can I move forward? And so this, you know, these, these intentions that we act from, we will act in ways that are unskillful. And so how can we get skillful at both acknowledging that quality of conscience and not piling hatred on ourselves for it. Because this too is not helpful. So the intentions towards non-ill will and non-cruelty, these two intentions connected with wise intention, I mean, they're pretty obviously connected with um, not moving in the direction of affliction. The third one of renunciation may be a little harder for us to connect with non-affliction. And primarily that's going to be the topic I talk about next week. But I'll just say a couple words about it. You know, renunciation tends to have a bad rap. And we think about it as giving up something we like often. Um, and, you know, what, what this renunciation, and, and actually in the time of the Buddha too, so this word renunciation, uh, the English word renunciation kind of has a bad rap, but even at the time of the Buddha, the quality that's described, I can't remember, what is Andrea, do you remember the, the word, Pali word for renunciation? Nekama. Nekama is the Pali word for renunciation. So that, that word um, in the time of the Buddha also had a bad rap. You know, the the uh, um, people, lay, lay practitioners came to the Buddha and said, oh, I'll read it. Venerable sir, talking to the Buddha, a householder, a lay person talking to the Buddha. We are householders who indulge in in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. 
For us, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this, doctrine, in this doctrine of the Buddha, the hearts of the very young monks leap at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people, that is, of renunciation. And the Buddha responded. I see this as a very compassionate response. He said, so it is, so it is. Even myself, before My awakening, when I was still unawakened, I thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, (laughs) didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm. And so he understood that renunciation was helpful because he, he saw that the, you know, the, well, I don't know what he saw, but His heart didn't leap up at renunciation. But he understood at some level, he said, renunciation is good, but his heart didn't leap up at him. So he he questioned, why is this? Why doesn't my heart leap up at the thought of renunciation? And he said, it occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawbacks in sense desire. I haven't seen the drawbacks to that. And this this is very much where this sheer drop-off happens. We don't see the drawback. We don't see the, the, the kind of the cycle that we're on in acting out of sense desire that actually is not helpful. And so the the Buddha pointed to and began to understand that it is understanding. It is really this shift of you around what leads to happiness. The shift of you of what is it that will create a lasting kind of happiness that can help us to transform our perspective on sense desire. Sense pleasure itself is not the problem. In, in speaking about this, the Buddha said, I let go of the desire for sense pleasure. I let go of that kind of that craving, that pull towards. That's where the, um, the transformation happens, is in our relationship to sense pleasure. Sense pleasure will happen. Pain will happen. Pleasure will happen. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral will happen in our lives. And it is our relationship to this flow of changing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, where often our suffering and struggle is found. We tend to want, to crave, to have greed for the pleasant, aversion for the unpleasant. We're often kind of confused and deluded about neutral. Confusion, delusion actually embeds the greed and the aversion because the the movement of greed is motivated by the view that happiness will come from getting what I want, that happiness will come from having that thing and being able to hold on to it. And so we have that, that view that's motivating us, the view that happiness comes from arranging the world to be as pleasant as possible. That's a view that most of us hold. And the Buddha 
pointed to understanding that view as being very limited. He acknowledged that some kinds of happiness do come from getting what we want. But he said because of the impermanent, unreliable nature of what we're holding on to, it's doomed. It is not going to be a lasting kind of happiness. It is not giving us what we are hoping it will give us. And so this is the perspective he began to look at around sense-desire. And so this, uh, this began, this begins a real transformation for us uh, to look at sense-desire from a new perspective. Supports our recognition that what we're, we're renouncing in renunciation is not something that we want, but we are really renouncing the wanting. We're renouncing the aversion. We're renouncing greed and aversion and delusion. That's this place of renunciation. We're renouncing those things that lead us into affliction. One of my... um, my colleagues pointed out that, you know, well, renunciation, you know, what we're typically doing as we engage in our, in our everyday lives, following through on the desire, the greed, and the aversion, and the delusion, is we're re- what we're renouncing is freedom. by following through on those. And so the the renunciation that's helpful is to let go or to explore this possibility of a different perspective on what might lead to happiness. So there's a few minutes for comments or questions or thoughts, reflections, if there's any. Yeah, and, and would you pass the mic back? Thank you for sharing that. That was very timely. Um, and I wanted to say, um, you know, I, I about the teachings being simple, I guess I see it another way in that I think they're simply stated, but not simple to live in, in one's own yes. life. And um, Yes, that is absolutely true. <laughs> it's taken me a long time to really understand that and not um, beat, beat yourself up. up. <laughs> yes, yeah. For my inability to... Um, to live that way and I because I have a situation right now where I'm struggling so much with wanting to set appropriate boundaries for my own like body and my nervous system because I actually have a body and you know when I have emotions I I really feel them and sometimes it's just really hard to make things work with kindness and yes it it is is. (laughs) yes and this is why I said about getting good at cleaning up the mess because we, I mean, the, and the reason why it's, well, it's, it's, well, sometimes it's stated simply, you know, we can, we can remember it simply at times, you know, just be here and be kind, you know, that, that could summarize the entirety of the Buddhist teachings, be here and be kind. Um, but oh, why don't you turn your mic off, because I'm getting a little bit of a feedback. Is it? Okay. Um, yeah, it's. It, I think is the green light on. It's on yeah. Turn. Yeah. Turn. 
Is this one on? I'm getting something. No? Yeah. Uh, try pressing the button again. Oh, there we go. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that um, um, you know, that, that it is stated simply, it can be stated very simply, be kind. Oh, I'm getting it again. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, can you hear? Okay. <laughs> That's odd. Yeah, huh, that is odd. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, that, that it can be stated simply, and yet it is not simple to do. And, and the reason for that is because of conditioning. You know, we have been uh, so conditioned towards, I mean, it's the sheer drop-off that, that was spoken of. You know, we are so conditioned towards this that, you know, so, so I think, you know, just simple things can help us maybe, uh, like, like that reflection about, you know, how can I, maybe I can bring into simple actions these intentions. That will support the nourishment of it in simple actions and then maybe help us to grow those qualities so they'll be more available in more difficult times. So, yeah, it is, it is not easy. Yes. <laughs> and, and I would definitely say it's not useful, you know, to just, you know, recognizing that tendency to kind of feel like, well, it's so simple, you know, why, why can't I do it? You know, this kind of self-flagellation. It's like, it is not simple. The power of conditioning is very strong. And so we have to kind of bow to that and say, yes, I, you know, and this is partly why we use that kind of holding. It's like, okay, so this is, this wish to, like, do this thing, this wish to kind of act out of frustration is so strong right now. And not trying to change the frustration, but can I hold the frustration? Have a sense of, okay, can this be held, you know, this, this is what's coming up. Can it be held with some kindness? And so it's like we expand our container to hold what's difficult. And then even sometimes that's not possible. And we just do these things. And then again, you know, we get recognizing that, getting good at cleaning up the mess. We had a teaching here once about patience, which was really helpful for me because in some of these situations, I've, I, I think I've just been conditioned living in the United States even, just like everything needs to get resolved in five minutes. And I've just learned, like, I can just put that down for a little bit. And I've learned things can get resolved, but sometimes they get resolved over, like, a six-month period. Yes. And not a six-minute period. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's a beautiful reflection, because that, that, too, is, you know, so the, you know, especially when something, when we've done something, you know, again, I think that immediacy of, I've got to resolve this now, is partly because we're not comfortable with that feeling of conscience. And so that exploration of can I, can I get comfortable, can I be okay that this feeling of, ugh, did something uh, that created some, some suffering, can I get comfortable with that so that there can be some space for letting something unfold? So that's, yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing up both the not simple to do and the patience.
So, and it's time to stop. So, thank you all.